0: You got your Bibles today we 're going to be in psalm twenty three and uh, you've probably heard that at some point in your life before this psalm if you don't know which one it is probably as soon as you open it and start to look at it you'll be like oh yeah and the Lord is my shepherd i've heard that one before and so uh, we're going to jump in and really dissect that passage today uh, as we continue on this journey of understanding how Hope is greater than anything else that we're going to face. And last week, we kind of dealt with this issue of understanding hope and how uh, that it's not just something that is off. Someday, one day, I'll be able to experience hope. And I just got to dredge through this life and make it through this life so that one day, my life will get better. And we talked about if that's actually the case, hope is kind of this discouraging concept. It's like, no hope for today, but maybe hope for tomorrow. And, uh, and we dealt with how we, we really deal with hope overcoming our temptations last week and dealing with a temptation to just quit and stop sometimes or to deviate and go a different way or to even fully retreat in our lives. And hope keeps us from doing that. And we looked at, a, there was a passage that... Uh, in Proverbs that I want to read again this week that just helps us at this idea of what hope really is. And it says, this is Proverbs twenty three seventeen and 18. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. And it's this idea that hope comes not when we look at other people and envy sinners or envy things that other people have, but instead, when we walk in the fear of the Lord, when we walk in obedience to the Lord, that daily hope comes alive in our life. And so, last week we kind of dealt with that that idea of that hope is sometime in the future, and the idea no, it's today. And and what we're going to deal with today is kind of this other misconception of hope is that you know fear has a chance to destroy my hope. And we're going to really deal with with things that we fear and. And the consequences of fear and, and how we learn hope is bigger than our fears. And so I want to begin today by, by taking a moment to challenge you to think about how you think about fear and hope. And so if I just ask you this morning, what, what's the biggest fear in your life? I, I'll be very honest with you. But like When I first hear that, the first thing that comes to my life and is, is in my, in my mind is kind of trivial, it's spiders. Like I hate I hate spiders. And I can trace it back to a moment in my life. When I was a kid, I got an older brother. Jay's three years older than me. And we used to, we would always play together and things like that. But Jay would often, he would catch one of these granddaddy long leg spiders. You know what those things are? They're like this little dot in the middle with these nasty little legs coming off. The, I, like They were just creepy to me. Like From the time I ever saw one, they were like creepy creatures. And somebody told me like... If, they're, they're, if their mouth was big enough, they'd bite you, they could kill you. There's no poison in there to kill you, and I, I don't think that's true. But I had that thought in my mind, and I was like, I'm going to get this one-deformed spider whose mouth is big enough to bite me, and I'm going to get killed. But anyway, Jay would get me, and he would hold me down. He would, like, pin me down, and he would dangle these spiders over me. And I'm, like, screaming and freaking out, and he would, like, drop them on my head. And I'm like, ah! I mean, I'm, still, I'm getting uh, chills right now thinking about it. Oh. I mean, I have a fear of spiders. Now, yeah, so, I'm be very vulnerable with you, so please don't, like, take advantage of me later. But I, I think most of us, like, got past maybe some of those surface-level fears, and we began to really ask, what do we fear in our life? We, we would probably say, thing, you know, we fear failure. You know, we feel harm or death coming to our way or to someone we love. We, we fear being rejected. We fear loneliness or being left alone and abandoned. We fear underachieving in our life. We want to accomplish something greater do something meaningful, meaningful and we feel like we're at this fear of underachieving. We feel like maybe we're missing opportunities. We see other people doing things and we're not and we just maybe have the fear we're missing out or maybe we have a fear of being unloved or being heartbroken. I mean, all of these fears, I think if, if we kind of went around this room, we might say it in different ways, but they would kind of fall into those categories. And the truth is, those, those are valid fears. I'm not trying to say this morning we shouldn't fear those things. Uh, I, I don't want to be abandoned. I don't want to be unloved. I, I don't desire to fail or be rejected. Those are natural fears. These are things that we should have some natural trepidation in dealing with. I don't think any of us wake up each morning and say, God, please shower me with these fears today. Like just give me... Let me live out this fear of rejection today. Just let me be rejected every corner that I go around. Or let me feel completely unloved today. We don't, we don't ask God to do that, but yet they're still real in our lives. And when we think about hope in the midst of these fears, here's what we usually think. We, term, we typically think... I'm going to have hope that God will deliver me from this fear. So He'll take it out of my life. He'll, he'll help us avoid it. Like, man, I, I don't want harm to come to my kids. So you know what? I'm going to pray and God's going to make sure nothing happens to them. He's just going to protect them. Nothing will ever happen. And we, that's what we think our hope over fear is, is we are hoping to avoid the consequence of our fear. And so someone we love gets a bad medical diagnosis. And we hope for healing. Someone loses a spouse and we hope for comfort or companionship for them. Someone loses a job and we hope for new work. Someone faces a moral failure and we hope for repentance and restoration in their life. It's what we hope for. And we're hoping that the consequence would go away. So, what happens then when hope doesn't come through? We've all done it's all happened it's at some point in our life, right? What happens when the person that got the bad medical diagnosis actually dies? What happens when we go months or years without a job? What happens when we get abandoned and we descend into darkness and depression? What happens when we pray for people to repent and they just seem to go farther and farther from God? Did we, did we miss hope? Did we Is all hope lost? Is it gone? According to our standard of definition... Well, we're let down again, aren't we? We're left wanting again. When we view hope as God not allowing our fears to come true, I want to be very honest with you. We will lose hope. Bad things are going to happen. Hope is not the absence of bad things in our life. Hope isn't the avoidance of fears or the consequences. It is instead this. It is the ability to be sustained through our fears and through the challenges they present. That's what hope is. It's not God taking you out of a situation. It's God walking with you through a situation and sustaining you through that moment of fear. I'll be very honest. There are times you're going to be afraid again. There are times fear are going to overwhelm you. But hope is the remedy to fear. It's not being relieved of that fear. It is being the remedy to it. That we continue to walk through it, but it does not overtake us. Why do we do this? Why do we sometimes place our hope and understand hope as this avoidance of bad things? Why do we think this concept of hope is just something like, God, I'm hoping in you, so get rid of this for me. I think it kind of happens in our life because we actually approach, approach the Christian life kind of backwards sometimes. And that's what this passage in Psalms 23 deals with. That's what we're going to look at today because we, we've probably most people in here have heard Psalm 23 at some point. And uh, we, we've, you know, God paints this amazing picture of what it's like to really journey with Him. So let's read this. And uh, and then we're going to kind of dissect an answer and see why sometimes we get this backwards. Psalms 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What an amazing Goodness and mercy. Dwelling in the house of the Lord. Most of us heard that. that were like, yes, I want the goodness of God. I want the mercy of God. I want to dwell in His house forever. I want, to be, I want to enjoy all of that. And that's where we start with, we're like, yes, give me all the good stuff. I don't want any of the bad stuff. Goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy. Give it to me, give it to me. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be unloved. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to fail. I don't want to be sick. That's what He promises, right? That is what I want, to give me just His goodness and mercy. And if all we take is that very last verse and try to claim that as a promise, we forget the journey of getting to that verse, which Psalms 23 lays out. So here's the best way I know how to describe it. We we take the, the thing that we want most from God, the goodness and mercy, and instead of really looking at how we can get there, we just want to add it on to our lives. We just want to be like, God, I'm living, I'm doing my life, and I'll just take some of your goodness and mercy and stick it in there too. And it's like what we do is we want to plant this beautiful flower in the midst of all these weeds, and we want to expect it to blossom, and goodness and mercy to overtake the weeds. If you know anything about gardening, for plants to flourish, what do you have to get out? The, the weeds. They choke out the life of of the plan, And so we think, well, we'll just stick this one good thing in here, and then it will get rid of all the bad things. And that's kind of the way we approach it. That's how we define hope. I'm going to stick this, okay, I love God, I want His goodness and mercy, I'm going to claim that promise, so I stick it in my life, and all the bad things go away, and that doesn't happen. We throw God and His promises into our lives like it's some special sauce or some secret ingredient and expect it to change everything just like that. It's like going and getting some fancy steak sauce at a nice steakhouse here in the city and go putting it on a Big Mac. Big Mac's still a nasty burger. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't change that it's processed meat on a bunch of, I don't know, I don't know. But uh, you can put the best steak sauce in the world on there. It doesn't change what it is. Maybe it covers the flavor for a minute, but it doesn't really change what it is. You know, it isn't promised that everything will be better. That's When he's saying there's goodness and mercy that we'll get, it's not a promise that everything will be better. Instead, it's a promise that if you truly place your hope in Christ, you will grow better. Your heart will be changed. You will be transformed. Your mindset will shift. Your faith will deepen. Your love for Christ will flourish. Look Look again at the back end of this passage where it says goodness and mercy. We start saying, yeah, I want the goodness and mercy. But what does it actually say that goodness and mercy will do? It says it will follow us all the days of our lives. So it's not just a promise that you and I will experience goodness and mercy. It's a promise that as we live our life, we're leaving goodness and mercy behind us as we walk through this life. Other people are experiencing the goodness and mercy of Christ through us as well. Our lives will become an expression of the goodness and mercy of Christ. So, how do we get there? How do we get to not just adding God in and actually really tra- allowing Him to transform our, our thought and transforming us and allowing us to live out of hope instead of out of fear? I think we go back to the beginning of this passage and begin the journey and see what happens. So, go back to the very first verse of Psalms 23 and the very first concept it says, This the Lord is my shepherd. I want to talk just quickly this morning about the role of the shepherd. And like, why does he even, why does King David who wrote this psalm, why does he equate God to being a shepherd? The primary role of a shepherd, I want you to understand this, I I, I may be wrong, because we've got people from a lot of different places here. Is anybody a shepherd by profession in here? Anybody? Okay, I didn't think so. So, uh, I, I have never shepherded in my life, like actual sheep. Uh, I think that's a word, shepherded it. But, I, I've never done that personally, but I have read about it, and and often think, you know, the role of the shepherd was to go out, and as long as he got all the sheep back at the end of the day, job well done. And that, that was kind of one job. But his primary role wasn't just to take the sheep out and get them back and protect them and stuff like that. It was actually the shepherd's job to make the flock flourish. That they would go out, and through feeding and through exercising and through finding greener pastures to feed off of, the sheep would become stronger. The sheep would become healthier. They would begin to thrive. They would mate. They would grow. The the flock would expand. His job was to make the flock flourish, not just protect the flock. That's a different concept. Because sometimes we think, okay, the Lord is my shepherd. All He is is out there He's just protecting me, keeping the wolves at bay and keeping us away from all the harm. And that's part of His job, but his other part of His job is to help us flourish, to help us grow. That's exactly what God, God does. At the end of the day, we should trust Him more. We should be stronger followers, deeper disciples, and ready to face the next day out of hope instead of out of fear because we've had an amazing day with our shepherd. So when, we, when he says here, the Lord is our shepherd, it's not just this guy out there fighting for us, it's a guy developing us. The Lord is growing us and flourishing us. So the Lord is my shepherd. Now now let's talk about how we actually journey from fear to hope by understanding this. And so, would you, I'm going to ask you this morning, would you allow the Lord to shepherd us this morning? Would you allow Him to, to lead us and to strengthen us a little bit this morning into this amazing truth of learning to internalize our hope in such a way that it expels the fear that we face in our life. And so at the end of our teaching time and the end of our day today, maybe we would be stronger, we would be healthier followers of Christ, or we would understand it in a different way. So let's look at this process. Verse 1 continues and it says this, "...the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures." He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. How do we get to goodness and mercy? Step one is actually not a step. It's to stop. See what he says here? He leads me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's a call to stop everything. To let go of everything and just lie down. But, but here's what we do instead. And I find this in my Christian life all the time. I, remember, I grew up in church and I remember when I finally came to that point of fully placing my faith in Christ, here's what I did. I, I was just kind of driving this old car of my life, you know, and, and instead of like stopping that car and getting out of that car, that old junker, and then like jumping in and having a new life, a new car, brand new life with Christ, here's what I did. I tried to upgrade my car as we were still driving down the road. Like, I was like, all right, I didn't have power windows. Let's install some power windows while we're driving down the road at 50 miles an hour. Like, my brakes are a little... Let's let's add some new brakes. I mean, it's just it's stupid thinking when you think of it that way. But that's the way we often approach our Christian life of like, I'm just going to keep going and not really change how I'm thinking and not really change what I'm doing and just expect upgrades to happen in my life as they come around. And we never Stop. And when God says the journey to hope begins with stopping. Stop thinking the way that we were. Stop having the same desires that we had before. And here's how this plays out in our lives. And here's why it doesn't work if we don't stop. When we don't take time, time to stop, fears like the fear of rejection or loneliness or being unloved will eventually overwhelm us because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to start living out and practicing some of these new things that I find in the Christian life or by coming to church or small group or through personal Bible study. And before long, I'm going to come along somebody who disagrees with me. And maybe it's somebody I respect. And here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, oh, you've been brainwashed. They got you. You're drinking the Kool-Aid now, aren't you? Like, you know, I don't like the, I don't like the new you. I've lost respect for you. I thought you were smarter than that. And all of a sudden, this upgrade that we thought was helping us, we were like, oh, people don't like it. Other people don't. And and what do we do? We try to start to hide it or diminish it or walk away from it. Because the fear of rejection and the fear of being abandoned by people that we respect overwhelms us. Because what have we not done? We haven't stopped and grounded our life fully in Christ. It's just an add-on. Christianity is not an add-on. It's not a label we wear. It is a transformation of your heart and your soul. It changes who you are. And, and what it grows in you is a fear. Remember the very first word, the passage I read out of Proverbs? that says, work instead of envying sinners walk in the fear of the Lord, this idea that my fear of disappointing God, my fear of not walking in the path that He has for me, is much greater than the fear of man over my new life. So I have the right fear at that point because I'm beginning from the right spot. How do we stop? One is literally you have to stop your body and your mind. I mean, I, I, I think in our world today, and especially in this city Sometimes you just got to stop. Take a day, take an hour, go somewhere, don't put the earbuds in, just go somewhere and be with God. And let Him overwhelm you. Engage fully in His presence. Think about Him. The, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when it was really cold, uh, PJ came up to me and he was like, I woke up and I saw the water outside of our window and he's like, I started thinking about our cruise that we're taking this summer. PJ's graduating and for his senior gift we're going on a cruise this summer. And like, and he said that to me, like I just started dreaming about the cruise. Like I was like, I was like, oh yes. Like I want to be just sitting on a deck, nothing going, like my mind was consumed with that thought. Everything else went away. You, you've had those moments, things you desire or whatever. That, that's, we need to do that with God. We need to let Him overwhelm us and find our contentment in Him. When that happens, my relationship with the Lord is now the starting point, not an add-on. And so stop. That's what He says to do is stop. Instead of seeing Him through the perspective of other people in our circumstances, we start seeing other people in our circumstances through Him and His perspective. That's what stopping does. It changes our perspective. And hope begins to well up in us enough to overcome those fears. It doesn't mean that we start ignoring people and acting like we don't care what people think. But I'm not hurt necessarily as much by their words. Because I understand the change that the Lord has brought about in me. So he says, stop. And then in in verse 2, part of 3 and 4, he says this. He says, "Then he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me." You know. It would be nice sometimes if the Christian life was all just about stopping and lying around. (laughs) Like, hey, let's just take a nap every afternoon. That's the best way for us to be Christians. I would I wish it said that somewhere in the Bible. Right? Afternoon naps are of God. But that's not always the way it that happens and and that's why he's saying it's not all just stopping. He says the next thing here is that you actually start walking in paths of righteousness with him, and that happens when we the word I like to use is we learn to abide with Christ. We begin to abide. Which means we are with Him. Our, our lives begin to become intertwined with Him and, and inseparable from Him. You know, I have a lot of acquaintances. People that I know and like I talk to and I would see and it's great to see them. And then I have some friends that my life is connected with. And then there are people like my wife Katie and our family that my life is intertwined with. Like it's, it's inseparable. Without her in my life, I'm not me. And here's what abiding means. We start thinking in terms of us instead of you and me. And we do the same thing with God. We stop saying, oh, that's what God wants me to do. What, how am I going to respond to that? It's what He wants, but what do I want? Abiding is when we stop thinking about Him and me and we start thinking about this in terms of us and our lives are intertwined together. And we do that by journeying with Him, by walking in difficult paths. Now, the valley of the shadow of death here was actually a real place, not just flowery language that was put in there so we had a nice verse to share at a funeral. I and mean, that's typically where we hear this verse. i walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you're with me. The valley of the shadow of death was an actual place on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And shepherds would often walk have to walk this path, and it was this deep, rocky valley that was a very difficult place to get through, and often thieves and muggers and things like that would hang out in there, and they would catch people off guard, and they'd go after them. The, the story of the Good Samaritan is set in the valley of the shadow of death. That a guy got robbed and he's laying on the side of the road and people are passing by and instead of helping him, they're not wanting to get attacked themselves and they just keep going. And so he's using this example because people understood a shepherd often had to take his entire flock to the valley of the shadow of death. That'd be a horrible place. To... Where are you heading today? Well, we're going to the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, let's hope we make it out. A... But they would often have to do that. And here's what happened: an inexperienced shepherd would often go in. And what would he do? He would take the easiest path, right? And the easiest path was actually the path with the most peril on it. Because it's it's where the robbers would set their, and the thieves would set their traps, and they would attack them. And instead, an experienced shepherd, what he would do is he would take the path less traveled. And it was actually the safer path. It was maybe the more difficult path to traverse, the more rocky path. And he would literally sometimes have to take one sheep at a time and help them get up onto the next level. And he w- where it says he used his rod and his staff to comfort them, he would sometimes use his rod and his staff literally to reach down, grab them by the hook of their neck, and yank them up top to the next level. It was his way of saving them because he was taking them on a path that he knew the sheep could take but the thieves and the robbers weren't going to put that much energy into getting there. And he, I can guarantee you, that shepherd got to know each one of those sheep intimately. Because he dealt with each one of them individually. And that's what abiding means. When it says that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death with the Lord and His rod and His staff, they comfort me. It literally means He is directing us and guiding us, strengthening us and protecting us even in the most difficult of situations. You would, as you, I was reading about this, it said that oftentimes the most, the, the most difficult journey for a shepherd was the journey he first took, first time he took a group of sheep through there. Because the sheep didn't know what were going on. Right? They're like, why is this guy yanking my neck? <laughs> like, you ever felt like God doing that to you? Like, God, why are you doing this to me? Like, that hurts. But then they would begin to understand, like, okay, this is the pathway to safety. And the more they traversed this together, the easier it became because the sheep started stopped fighting the shepherd and they started cooperating with the shepherd. And that's what abiding does for us. We stop fighting God and saying, God, get rid of this fear in my life and saying, God, I'm walking through it with you. I believe and trust in you and have enough hope in you that even though this isn't the most pleasant feeling or the easiest path, I know that I'm willing to follow you because I know that you love me and you protected me over and over again. That's what abiding is. And it finishes with this. It says this in, in verse 5 and 6. It says, Then you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord Forever, So we, we get back to where we like to start, the goodness and mercy. And I love this, this visual imagery that he does here because he says, look, all that I've done for you, like learning to stop abiding in me and journeying with me, is leading us to a point where now it's our job to engage other people and to impact other people with what I've done for you. Think about it. He says he sets up a table to eat at in the presence of his enemies. That makes zero sense. Right? Let's go into battle. No, let's stop for lunch. Let me put up a table for you to eat. And here's what he's saying. Even your enemies will be astounded by how much you are blessed by me. They will see the blessings in your life well in front of you. And then he says, I'll anoint your head with oil. Anointing was very common in those days for sickness and for other things. And the oil itself was very precious. So usually when you were anointed with something that was like just wiped across your forehead or maybe gently on your head, He says, I'm actually anointed, I'm blessing you enough that as, you're, and as the oil would run down, they would actually catch the oil again so that they could reuse the oil. It says, I'm anointing you so much that the cup that you're catching the oil in is overflowing. You're going to be blessed so much that you've got now more blessings to give to other people. Your cup overflows. It's not to keep to yourself, even if you wanted to. You can't. You can't keep it all. It's going to overflow into other people's lives. And then we understand this idea that how then goodness and mercy follow us. Because our cup is overflowing, our enemies are even seeing the blessings of God in our life. Because we've stopped... And we've taken account of our lives and we've changed our perspective. We've been abiding and walking in paths of righteousness. And now we have a chance to impact the world. I love this idea of goodness and mercy following. I've shared this before. I grew up close to a lake that people would often go skiing on. And you get these ski boats that just go. And the great thing about a ski boat is what does it leave And it's behind it? It's wake right? I mean, these these things come out and that's the fun part to ski on. I mean, it's like to, to jump those and if, you're, if you can ski, if you don't ski, you try to stay away from those, but that wake impacts everything behind that boat. The skiers that are behind it, the other boats that are behind it, people that are swimming behind it, it impacts their life. Uh, when we Live out of hope. When we stop and we abide and we let hope begin to take root in our life and overcome our fears and not say, get me out of these fears but walk me through these fears, we are leaving a wake of goodness and mercy in our life. And it cannot help but impact other people's lives. It can't help. It will. You can't keep it to yourself. And so my question to you is this. If goodness and mercy are not flowing out of your life... Have you ever really stopped? If they're not flowing out of your life, if your cup's not overflowing, have you really been abiding with God? Or have you just made Christianity an add-on? A sticker, a label that you wear, hoping that like, by putting this on, all the bad things are going to go away, and I'm only going to get the good things. So, I'll end with this thought. And this simple question Are you letting the Lord shepherd you? The Lord is my shepherd, but are you letting Him shepherd you? Are you one of those sheep who seem to keep running away, wanting to make their own path, and not trusting in your shepherd? Would you stop and then start with Him? Would you abide and then walk with Him? And then would you live and let your life share him with others? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me?